basically are in the life of Abram and we will be for a few months. And here we're still getting acquainted with him and getting to know who he is. And interestingly enough, we get to watch him as he gets acquainted with the one true God and gets to know who God is. And so that's going to be a fascinating journey that we get to take with him. And we want to pay attention both to the nature of who God is and the nature of who man is and man's process of learning to be faithful after he has come to faith. And so this morning, our main idea is that God uses Abram's partial obedience to develop his faith through natural consequence, based on God's grace, so that God and not Abram is responsible for Abram's separation. So that God and not Abram is responsible for Abram's separation. God's faithfulness does not depend on the quality of our faith or faithfulness, but full experience of God's blessing will be reserved until we are prepared through obedience to enjoy it fully in fellowship with him. Now, as we'll see, this has a parallel with our own salvation. And uh, if you'll pay attention to my intonation here, it is not our faith in Christ that holds us secure, but our faith in Christ that holds us secure. What matters is the object of faith. You see, God is going to lead Abram into the promised land, despite the fact that Abram wasn't perfectly obedient, because God is in the process of teaching him to be perfectly obedient. And that is something that he does with us in our life as well. And so we're in number three in our small set of seven here, where Abram goes through his first cycle of learning to obey the Lord and to be a blessing in the land. And in this, we see him finally make his pilgrimage into Canaan. And you'll remember that that was the first condition that God put on him. He says, go forth from your land, from your father's house and from your relatives. And he does that partially. He does go forth. He does go into the land and God is faithful to him. Now what we didn't have time to get through last time, I think it's a good time to indicate here is that we have what is called a dispensational shift here. We are moving from the dispensation of human government under Babel into promise. And this has to do with how God operates or orients his people towards himself, the way in which God rules among his people. So we're going to take a brief survey through the dispensations, and some of them we've spent quite a bit of time on. Others, we will spend basically the rest of our time together uh, in God's word, because we get five dispensations in Genesis, and then or four dispensations in Genesis, and the other three are the occupation of the rest of Scripture. So Genesis is dispensation heavy. We saw the dispensation of dominion or responsible dominion in Genesis 1 and 2, and then responsibility or conscience in Genesis 3 through 7. Government under Babel in 8 through 11 and now we have come to promise, which is going to be from Genesis 12 all the way through Exodus 18. So we see that more and more time is being spent on each of these. Law occupies the rest of the Old Testament, including the four Gospels. Grace covers the epistles and the first three chapters of Revelation. 
And then moving into the kingdom, that's basically what Revelation is. Revelation 11 tells us this is the process of bringing about the kingdom of God, eradicating the kingdoms of this earth and establishing his own on the throne of this kingdom. And you'll remember that that was the very purpose of creation. All of these dispensations move towards God's reestablishment of his kingdom program in creation, of reaching the goal of his glory in creation. Now you'll notice that most of the Bible is occupied with these three dispensations of law, grace, and kingdom. And that has primarily to do with the fact that that's when scripture began to be recorded. These are the clearest, most clearly distinguished in all of scripture. There is a clear distinction between Israel's theocracy and the organism of the church under grace, and a clear distinction between the church age and the coming kingdom age. Now, by way of reminder, what is a dispensation? Why do we break history up like this? Well, these aren't necessarily ages. These aren't necessarily covenants, so they have covenants controlling the way that man relates to God. But these have first and foremost to do with how God is bringing about his kingdom purpose on this earth. C.I. Schofield, way back when, wrote about a dispensation that it is a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience. Well, we've seen human tests all through Genesis so far, and we see it now with Abraham. Specifically, that obedience is tested in uh, relation to some specific revelation, especially the revelation of God's will. Charles Ryrie says a dispensation is a distinguishable economy. Now, economy is kind of a key word here because it means household. This is the Greek word oikonomia, which is the Greek word oikos for house. This is how God organizes his house, his family. Dispensations primarily govern the people of God. It's not a means of salvation, but a way that those who are saved organize their own lives in relationship to God. We deal here with believers in the economy of God. Dispensation is the distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose, and his purpose is to bring glory to himself. A dispensation is a particular way of God's administering his rule over the world as he progressively works out his purpose for world history. And so, in all of these dispensations, we see that progress being made. And that is what we see in promise as well, is the biggest pivotal moment in God's reestablishment of his creation purpose. And that is going to be the significance of promise. But in the dispensation of dominion, we saw that God had instituted a mediatorial kingdom. He put mankind over creation and said to rule responsibly in accordance with God's will. And what did Adam and Eve do? They did not rule in accordance with God's will, but instead they let creation itself rule over them and to subvert God's will on earth. Well, this broke that relationship and God began to restore that relationship as well. So now not only does he have his kingdom purpose to work out ultimately, but he has redemption as well that he needs to make. And so responsibility begins with the promise of mankind's continuance and eventual redemption. 
Government is where God lays the fabric once again for this kingdom on earth. The promise of creation's continuance until this purpose is fulfilled. And so now we're in promise where the groundwork has been laid and now God is going to carve out a people by which he is going to fulfill his purpose to have humankind who has free will is a free agent willingly serve the Lord in uh, orienting his will towards God's in ruling over this earth. So we have the beginning of the fulfillment of mankind's redemption and the kingdom restoration. That is what is going on here in the dispensation of promise. God is pulling out a people that he can train, that he can give his word to, that he can reveal his will to, that he can bring the redeeming savior through and a government over which he can rule all of creation. Each of these dispensations we can see is organized into various stages as well. It begins with a major event, some turn in history, something that changes everything. And then we see a human steward, someone who God makes responsible for administering this rule of God. We see the human responsibility given to him, a test of obedience. We usually see failure on mankind's part so that God can step in and that all is God's part. We see divine judgment and divine grace. You'll remember back in dominion or innocence, that major event was creation. The steward was Adam and he was to reveal that will of God to Eve and he did a poor job of it. And Eve did a poor job living by that will. And so that human responsibility was to have dominion over the earth, and that meant executing God's will over creation. And they did not do that. The human test was submission to God, both in positive and negative statements, and they did not do that. So this human failure was the choice to submit their wills to Satan's rather than to God's. The divine judgment was the curse, something that we still live under today. And the divine grace was the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a savior seed. In conscience or responsibility, we saw that the major event was the fall, where the curse was imposed over mankind. This changed creation. It changed the very laws of nature. The stewards were Adam and his children, we see in Genesis 5. The responsibility was to approach God by means of a blood sacrifice, to understand that they needed an atoning sacrifice to stand between them and God. The human test was to calibrate their conscience according to God's word, to receive his stated will, and to choose willingly to obey it. The failure was the wickedness of the whole world. It began with Cain and his choice rather than to accept God's sacrifice to present the work of his own hands. And this led him to a murderous rage where he killed his brother. And it progressed all the way to the failure of hum humankind to remain pure and mixing with the angels. The divine judgment was the flood, which once again changed the very course of human, uh, of, of nature. 
and the divine grace was Noah's Ark. God rescued a family, a single family, to restart creation. Dispensation of human government then started with that major event of the flood, and then we saw a human steward, Noah, and his children. The responsibility was to punish murder, was to prevent evil from spreading. He did this by means of a divine institution of civil government and the divine institution later then of nationalism. The human test was to populate the earth, and what did they do? They crowded into one little area of the earth and said, no, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Their failure was to spread out. And so what does God do? He judges them with dispersion. He spreads them out. And his divine grace in this is to pull out a single nation, a single nation by which he is going to establish his kingdom. He pulls out Israel. And that brings us to the, to the dispensation of promise. The major event that led to this promise to Abram was the Tower of Babel. This caused God to separate Abram from the rest of the nations, to carve him out of the 70 nations to create a unique nation, one purely of his creation. He gave him the, this dispensation, these three stewards, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave them the responsibility of separating themselves to God. The test of mediating blessing on the earth. Their human failure, of course, was to mediate blessing. The very place we see Abram arrive to today, Shechem, becomes the ultimate place of failing to mediate God's blessing. When they massacred all the inhabitants of Shechem, God began his divine judgment of bringing them into Egyptian captivity in order to train them. But this comes with divine grace as well, because he led them out of Exodus or he led them out of Egypt in the Exodus. Now, we won't go through the other three dispensations yet because we're not there in the text. We're going to stick with the text here and look at the significance of this promise that God made with Abram because, as I've mentioned, this changed the whole course of history. As we saw in the various cycles of testing and judgment in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, man continually failed. Every time man was, or every time we saw a candidate for a Messiah, such as Noah, even Noah, as great as he is, failed. And here we've got Abram, and already we see his failure right from the very beginning. We're not even given the opportunity to think that he is going to be a good candidate for Messiah. But that's because God is going to bring the Messiah through him. And in order to do that, he is going to train Abram to depend on God and to depend on him wholly. And so in Genesis 12, God stated his promise to Abram. He said to go forth, which is to separate yourself, to separate themselves from country, from relatives, from his father's house, and that God would bring him to the land which he would show him. Once he was there, God promised that he would make him a great nation. A nation requires both people to populate it and land for the people to populate, and some unifying element around which these people are united. He promised them blessing. That ultimately is that unifying element, and that he would make them a great name. Following that obedience then, 
he commanded that Abram would be a blessing. This is an imperative, not a promise. He commanded Abram, once he is in the land, to be a blessing. As a result of that, he would bless those who blessed Abram. And he would curse those who cursed Abram or treated him lightly. And in all the families of the earth, and uh, all the families of the earth, they will be blessed in Abram. This is how God plans to restore creation blessing to the earth is through the family of Abram. Now here in Genesis 12, we don't yet have a covenant. We have a promise of a covenant. Much like Noah was promised a covenant before the flood. And after the flood, God ratified that covenant with him. After Abram proved obedient, God established an unconditional covenant with Noah. Here, Abram is going to be proven obedient. God is going to train him into obedience. And once he trains him, God will give him an unconditional covenant that has unconditional blessings attached to it. And so we see the importance then of training this steward. Because when God is giving an unconditional covenant, he is giving it to a free agent, one who can choose to rebel, one who can choose to walk away and to abuse that blessing. God is training them not to do so. And so this is the progress that we will see through this dispensation of promise, where God is going to promise a covenant in Genesis 12. He is going to inaugurate that covenant in Genesis 15. Then he is going to confirm that covenant in Genesis 17. He will reconfirm to Abram, the first steward, in Genesis 22, and then to Isaac, the second steward, in Genesis 26, and then finally to Jacob in Genesis 35, before establishing this covenant with all of the children of Jacob. This covenant is the Abrahamic covenant, which will guarantee Israel land, seed, and blessing. The restoration of the curse, the restoration of death, the restoration of broken relationship with God. God is planning to fix everything that man broke. And he is going to use these free agents to do it by teaching them, by training them, and ultimately by redeeming them in the Savior. Now, I like this graphic here. It's by Model Bailston from Ariel Ministries. We had uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum come speak at our conference last fall. This is a man who, who works with Arnold Fruchtenbaum created this. Well, I like this because it shows the significance of promise being right smack dab in the center of God's plan. For those of us who spend a lot of time looking at these dispensations, promise is often forgotten, but it shouldn't be. Because the first three were training humankind generally, but promise is where God begins to actually change everything. Where God steps in and gives this Abrahamic covenant that guarantees the perfect result of establishing the kingdom on this earth. The term promise we actually get from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, where we see the faith hall of fame. When we're introduced to Abram, we see this said about him. By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. 
And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs to the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were waiting for the kingdom of God's creation. Earlier in Hebrews 6, we saw this same promise when God or when the writer says, when God made the promise to Abram, since he could swear by no one greater, no one greater than himself, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. This promise changed the course of history. And so as we look at this, we want to see exactly what changed, how it changed, and what is the result of that change. And we begin by looking at the stewardship responsibility of Abram, because a dispensation is looking at it from God's side. God dispenses stewardship to mankind. The stewardship looks at it from mankind's perspective. What is the responsibility? And so Abram, as this human steward, is responsible to separate himself, to get himself up and away from the worldly ties that give him a name and reputation and status, and to cast himself into God's arms, to let God create something new from him. God is going to wrench him away from all the earthly comforts so that God and God alone is his comfort. And so we start by looking at Abram's partial deference, partial obedience in his sublunary departure. Now here's a, a word that I learned this week as well. So I have a definition for y'all. Sublunary is an adjective. It means of, relating to, or characteristic of the terrestrial world. We'll see that when Abram departed, when he left Haran, he was very focused on his worldly possessions. Yes, he was going to a land that God was going to give him, but he was very occupied with what he would bring with him. The second definition is having to do with life on earth, especially as opposed to that in heaven. Now, Abram has a heavenly hope, but we look at this now in sort of an accordion where we look at Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 22, and we see the progress of Abram's faith in a snapshot. But here in Genesis 12, he is still learning faith. He is still learning how to depend on God. And so he has not yet learned to separate himself from the earth. The thing he does do, though, he does separate himself from the country that he was in. He picked up stakes and he moved. And this was enough faith for God to work with. This was enough faith to begin molding Abram into the great patriarch of faith. In fact, that faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11, everyone gets one, maybe two verses. Abram gets 12 verses about his faith. And we get to watch it happen. Abram went forth, Genesis 12, 4 says, as the Lord had spoken to him. Both the command and this Genesis 12, 4 begin their sentence in the Hebrew with go. First is a command, go. 
Then we see Abram's response in Genesis 12, went. He went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And where did he go from? He went from Haran. So far, he's doing pretty good. We saw the same kind of faith with Noah. And we saw his whole family saved because of it. Thus, Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him. And so he did. These all mean in the same manner, just in like manner. In exact replication of what God had commanded Noah did it perfectly. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. But Abram did not. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, but Lot went with him. Now you'll say, Pastor, that says and, not but. And you're going to regret saying that because that means we have to look at a little bit of Hebrew grammar because this uses what's called the Vav consecutive which has five different translations that only matter in English, but not in Hebrew. We can use but for the Vav consecutive, such as in Genesis 2.6, but a mist, used, a mist used to rise from the earth to water the whole surface of the ground. We can use now. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, we can use then. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, we can use when. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, we can use so. But the children struggled together with her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. You might say, then, this is just far too, far too uh, tenuous to be able to land on but instead of and. But in this very same passage, they've landed on so and now, in other clauses. So Abram went forth, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 70 years old. These are all the same word in the Hebrew. Because the Vav doesn't tell us anything about what is expected in the clause. It just tells us how it is organized in terms of verb tense. The Vav consecutive is used uh, of the Vav in a continual narration, which this is. This is a story. It's being written in continual narration in which either the perfect or imperfect form of the verb is, being the is beginning the narration. So when the narration is begun with a perfect verb form, then the remaining narration is treated as a consecutive action to the initial verb. This Vav connective has to do with verb tenses, not the flavor of the conjunction. The use of now, when, but, so this is just English. This is something that we have to determine based on context. And so the translators have made a contextual decision to use and instead of but. But even so, there's three different buts that they could choose. There's the corrective but, which corrects details in a discourse. For example, in Genesis 24, 37 to 38, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house. This corrects action. There's the contrastive but. Uh, contrasting details with previous details in the discourse. For example, in Genesis 14, 4, 12 years they had served Kedaloamer, but in contrast to the previous 12 years, in the 13th year they rebelled. Now the one that I am claiming this is 
is a concessive but or adversative. This presents details which are contrary to expectation. God said, separate from your family. It is contrary to expectation that Abram brought Lot with him. An example of this in Genesis 19 in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels said, no, but we will spend the night in the town square. This is their stated intention, their purpose. And so it is contrary to expectation that they would do anything else. But the narrative continues, but Lot pressed them strongly. So I'm claiming here that because he was told not to bring his relatives with him, but to separate himself from the relatives, that this should be a but. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, but Lot went with him. This is stating a problem in the narrative, something that needs to be resolved. And the next two chapters deal with resolving that issue. But we see here, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And what did Abram bring with him? Abram took Sarai, his wife. Good, she is his family, not his father's family. And Lot, his nephew. Now there's the issue. They also brought with them all their possessions, which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And then they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now Abram brought Lot with him because his brother Haran had died. Haran was the older brother, and uh, Abram was probably the middle child, though he may have been the youngest child. It is likely that now Abram is the heir to Terah, the one who carries on Terah's line, but God is separating him. As the new heir, though, he is also responsible to his brother to adopt his son, Lot, as his own heir. What Abram is doing here by bringing Lot into the land is producing or uh, bringing along with him his own heir. And this isn't the only time Abram is going to do this. In fact, we find this is quite characteristic of Abram. He brings Lot to be an heir, and when he loses Lot through separation, he, uh, he gets this other man, Eliezer of Damascus, to be his heir. And when God says, no, it's not going to be Eliezer of Damascus, but someone who comes from your own body, well, he and Sarai devise this plan by which he has a baby through Hagar. And now he has Ishmael. Lot, or Abram rather, is preoccupied with producing his own heir. God is going to train him to trust in God to produce this heir. Because we have this problem of Sarai being barren. Abram thinks, I have to fix that problem in order to receive God's full blessing. But they do set out for the land of Canaan. And they come to the land of Canaan. Now this is quite a journey, not quite as long as moving from Ur to Haran, but a journey nonetheless. It is about 450 to 500 miles, depending on which way they went. It would have taken them quite a while, but when they do arrive, they arrive in this little town called Shechem, which was actually not quite so little in the Canaanite towns, but it's between two mountains called, uh, called Gerizim and oh crap, Ebal and Gerizim, of course. 
So here is the journey, all the way there from Haran down to Shechem. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, and then he stops. Here's a picture of Shechem today. In fact, it was just in the news this week because uh, two German tourists drove their Israeli car into the land of Shechem, and it was stoned, and they tried to tear the German out of the car in order to stone them because they thought they were Israelis who wandered into Palestinian territory. And so Shechem is still a populous city today and still in the news today. And it is the first place where God's promise to Abram was established. It's also the place through which the children of Israel will return in the Exodus. They will come back to this place of Shechem. Here's another view of it, looking between the two mountains into the valley there of Shechem. And a view here looking from the north towards the south, where we've got Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now, why is it important that this is between Ebal and Gerizim? Because the Israelites who received the book of Genesis were about to stand on either one of these mountains and have the promise of blessing and cursing pronounced. And they will stand there and have the choice which they will choose to serve God, to obey his word, to follow in his will, and to execute that in the land, or else to rebel against his word and to incur cursing. This is a place of decision, and we'll see that it is a place of decision for Abram as well. In Deuteronomy 11.29, when the second generation of Israel is about to return to the land, Moses writes, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way, toward the sunset, in the land of the Canaanites, who live in Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Morah? And that's exactly where Abram arrives. He arrives as far as the site of Shechem, to the oaks of Moreh, and now the Canaanite was then in the land. Some commentators say that somebody else besides Moses must have added this little notation that the Canaanites were in the land because they don't understand why Moses wrote it in the first place because the Canaanites were in the land when Moses got there as well. But Moses is describing the events on the ground as Abram got there. Because this is the same kind of plot conflict as we got back in chapter 11 when we find out that Sarai is barren. God has promised to Abram a nation, that a nation would come from him. But how is that possible because Sarai is barren? So Abram goes about fixing the problem. He adopts Lot as his heir. Then he adopts Eliezer of Damascus as his heir. Then he tries to produce his own heir in Ishmael. And here we have a second plot conflict. The land that God has promised to Abram, and he has now brought him to Abram, it's already occupied. Now this is after the flood by only about three or four hundred years. Not all the land on earth is occupied. God could have brought him to an unoccupied tract of land. But here, here are the Canaanites. And so Abram is probably wondering at this point, has God made a mistake? Did he even bring me to the right place? Because this is already someone else's land. 
But the Lord confirms to him that this is the place that he intends to give him. The Lord appeared to Abram. Now this might not seem that shocking because throughout scripture, we see all kinds of places where the Lord appears to various people. We might think right away of the Lord appearing to Mary or the, an angel appearing to Mary rather. The Lord appearing to Paul. The Lord appearing to Abram in Genesis chapter 18. But this is the first time in Genesis, the first time since creation, that we see the Lord appearing. The Lord has spoken before. But here God has come down to meet Abram. This is a theophany where God has chosen to reveal himself to Abram. The last time we saw anything like this was Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. This is the last time the actual manifestation of God was told to us to be on earth. This is what God is restoring in Israel, the presence of God in a locality on earth. We see the progress as Abram grows in faith and where we move from this point where it's, it's a little bit not like fellowship here when God appears to Abram. But once he comes in Genesis 18 to fellowship with Abram, this is a God that Abram knows. This is a God that Abram has been learning to trust. Now the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre. This one is south of Jerusalem. The Oaks of Moray are north of Jerusalem. While he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Abram is running out here to meet an old friend. Someone who appeared to him decades earlier and promised him land, seed, and blessing. A God that he trusts now, not because God is different, but because Abram is different. He has grown more spiritually mature. He understands God's love for him better. But here, when God appears to Abram, Abram doesn't know him very well. Just the God who has promised him something that he has not yet brought to pass. But he promises him specifically, and he says, to your descendants, I will give this land. Answering what may have been going on in Abram's head. This land is already occupied. God says, no, I will give it to you. Even in the promise that we got in Genesis 1 or 12, 1 through 3, God never says to Abram, I will give it to you. He just says, I'm going to bring you into it. Here he says, it will be yours and it will be given to your descendants. But Abram doesn't stick around. God brought him to Shechem, said, this is your land. I'm going to give this to you. And Abram proceeded from there. We'll notice that for the rest of Abram's journey here, God is absent from the narrative. The last time we see God is Genesis 12, 7, until God has to rescue him 
from Egypt. Again, this is a Vav consecutive. I don't think this is supposed to be then. I think it has the idea in English of but. But he proceeded from there. Abram left the place of meeting. He continued on by himself to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now previously, God met him, and then he built an altar. And then he approached God by means of blood sacrifice. He did what they were supposed to do. But he left without God, and when he gets there, rather than God appearing to him and then he builds an altar, Abram tries to initiate the interaction. I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to please the Lord. I'm going to call him down to this place because this place isn't populated or not as populated. We'll see when this fails, he's going to keep going south to the desert in Negev. But that's not where God called him to. In fact, we see here that he pitches his tent on the east of Bethel. Now, he didn't pitch his tent in Shechem where God met him and said, this is your land. He built an altar there and then he left. Now he's putting down stakes. He's saying, okay, but I'm choosing this bit. This is good for me. Now, it's interesting here that Moses uses the name Bethel because at the time that Abram entered into it, it was not called Bethel, but it was called Luz. It's renamed Bethel after Jacob receives a vision from the Lord of angels coming down to earth and back to heaven. God promises Jacob at that time, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Moses is probably recalling to these Israelites' mind the promise of land and having left land, the promise to bring them back. But also Bethel and Ai is quite a ways from Shechem. It's about 35 miles. That's more than a day's journey. Moses, or Abram rather, traveled until he got there, down these windy and hilly uh, wadis in Israel. And he gets to Bethel. And he gets to Ai. He sets up camp between these. And I think this is why Moses chose to use the name Bethel instead of Luz. Because Bethel is God's house. And Ai is a ruinous heap. This is the meaning of these names in Hebrew. And so where is Abram standing? Where is his point of decision? He is standing between God's house, the place where God dwells, and a ruinous heap. He's got a choice to make. He's standing there east of Bethel, east of the house of God, just as Cain went east of Eden away from God's presence. God is going to have to bring Abram back. And he is faithful to do that. He is going to bring him back. But Abram's trying to bring God down to him. Abram's trying to say, no, I choose this plot of land. Now, we'll see in Genesis 13, God is going to give that land to him. But God has not yet brought him there because Abram doesn't get to enjoy the full blessing yet because he's not been faithful yet. 
And this is something that we experience in our Christian lives as well. We do have the riches of grace available to us at the moment of salvation. But there are certain blessings that come along with our salvation that we will not experience without faithfulness. And this is the same for Abram. This does belong to him. It is in God's program to give it to him. But look at when God finally confirms to him that this is his land as well. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. This is the first place where God says that Abram will own this land. Until now, it has been his descendants. But when Abram finally fulfills the commands of God in Genesis 12, 1, God confirms to him, you will receive this blessing. But in Genesis 12, 9, after Abram stands between Bethel and Ai with his tent, rather than turning back up towards the house of God, towards Shechem, where he met him and said, this is your land, Abram turns south. Abram journeyed on. Literally, Abram pulled up stakes. He set out. He took his Bedouin tent and he headed off to a land of his own making. This continuing is actually an infinitive absolute, a verb in the Hebrew, which has the idea of continually going on. Gives us the sense of futility. In fact, these two Hebrew words in the yellow are the same verb. Abram just keeps going and going, and going, and going. He heads all the way south into the desert so that by the time a famine hits the land, he's in the desert. And he just hops over the river of reeds into Egypt, seeking help among human kingdoms rather than God. All right, let's drive this home just a little bit. We'll come to a little section here on application and we'll look at divine guidance, the will of God and what is it and how do we know what it is? Well, for Abram, that was pretty simple. God said, go to the land that I will show you. And he shows him the land. He didn't tell him to go any further. Sometimes this is how God will operate. He'll show us where he wants us and he's not going to show us the next steps yet. He just needs us there. He needs us to abide to continue with him. We're not going to spend much time here looking at the application for Abram because that is what the rest of the book of Genesis up through chapter 25 is going to be about, how this is applied to Abram. But remember who this was written to. The first recipients of this book was Israel. Israel in the Exodus as they're about to enter into this promised land just as Abram had done, where they're entering into the very same place, into Shechem, the very place where they had lost their right to be in the land for the time. And so they have some choices to make, and those choices are always going to concern obeying the will of God. How was the will of God revealed to them? God made it very clear and very visible to them. Where God appeared for a time to Abram in Shechem, he appears as a continual presence in the camp of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. He appears as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 13, we read that the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. 
to show them exactly where he wants them to go, and in the pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And in Numbers 9.17, when we see them in their wanderings, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, the tent of God's meeting, the meeting place in the tabernacle, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. God moves first, and then they go. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. And just to drive it home a bit more, this is a very repetitive section in Numbers. Most of Numbers is very repetitive, but this is a very repetitive section. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. Abram set out without the direction of God, and it led him into Egypt. Israel continued without the direction of God, and it led them into Egypt. Now here God is leading them out of Egypt. And guess what? They are following. But they don't continue to follow. And this is the problem. This is what Moses is reminding them. Yet you were not willing to go up to the promised land. God brought them all the way to the edge and said, I'm going before you. I'm going in to fight the battle ahead of you. But they rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us. They didn't trust God. And so they didn't follow him. He brought him right to the edge of the promised land and says, go in. I'm going ahead of you just like I have for the last 40 years. I'm going ahead of you. Then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the ways which you have walked until you came to this place. They had every reason to trust God. They had every reason to follow his leading, but they didn't. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to camp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Now, God doesn't do this for us today. There's no visible cloud of smoke by day and in, or a visible cloud of fire by night. But God does have divine guidance for the believer. In fact, he has divine guidance primarily in three areas of the Christian life. And we often don't think of the first one. We often skip right to the third one. Where does God want me to be? Does he want me to sell my house and move? Does he want me to go on vacation? These are the things that we think about. These are the things Abram was thinking about. But more often than not, especially in the epistles, we are commanded how to think. This is something sometimes I think we assume God has no business there. God can't tell me how to think. That's out of my control even. Then he progresses to how do we act. You see, you can't just give a person commands of how to act because if they're thinking wrong about that, they're not going to 
do the action correctly. The spiritual life of the believer begins in the mindset, begins in the renewing of the mind, and then proceeds outward to action. And then comes the question, where does God want me doing this? Romans 12, 1 through 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. So we have activity in view here. Presenting and service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now that could go either way, but it is narrowed down to mindset by the renewing of your mind. This is how we are conformed, not to the world, but transformed to God. Our mind is renewed, and how does that happen? So that you may prove what the will of God is. This word prove meaning test. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. It continues, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think, more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The first thing that God deals with correcting is how we are thinking about the world around us, how we are thinking about ourselves, and how we are thinking about God. This is revealed to us in Scripture. This is how our minds are renewed, by taking in doctrine and by allowing the Spirit to apply it to us. We request of you, brethren, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace with one another. He deals first with the mindset and then the resulting actions. We urge you, brethren, then, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. You see, we have divine guidance. We have an instruction manual of living the Christian life. But the instruction manual doesn't come with a map to tell us where we need to be to do these things. Now, God does have purpose and intention for our lives that may drive us to one place or another. Just like for Jonah, God wanted Jonah and Nineveh. Nineveh, or Jonah out of hatred for the Assyrians, said, no, I'm not going there. And he, he uh, picks up a ticket to the furthest place he can get. God has a way of dragging him to the place he needs to be. But what was the first problem? Jonah's mindset was wrong. He was probably even willing to do the activity, just not in Nineveh. But God first corrects the mindset and then he corrects the activity, and then he brings him to where he needs to be. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 continues, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're told God's will. Be happy. Pray. Be in communication with him. And prayer is one of the ways that we learn where we should be. You see, we're supposed to exercise responsible dominion in this earth. We're supposed to be responsible. God has not created a bunch of robots where he says, you're going to go here and you're going to go here and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. We have the responsibility to be in fellowship with God, a relationship with him, to exercise volition, choice, 
but to do so responsibly seeking God's will. To be thankful, to be mindful of his will, to be in communication with him through prayer. And then Paul writes, do not quench the spirit. When the will of God is revealed, don't say, no, I'm not doing that. When the spirit leads, be willing before it even begins to lead to say yes, because you know the will of God is tested and true. The will of God is going to lead you where you need to go. And so if the question is always my will or God's will, you're never going to get anywhere. But if the answer is God's will, then all you need is the direction. He's going to reveal it to those who are willing to do his will. Now, location for the believer has two aspects to it. We have both spiritual location and physical location. Quite often, we only serve the flesh and don't serve the spirit. We're so concerned with where we ought to be physically that we forget where we ought to be spiritually. I think that was Abram's problem. He didn't realize where he needed to be spiritually. And he had a good idea of where he thought he should be physically. God tells us exactly where we need to be. We need to be in him. Abide in me and I in you, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. There is a lot of concern given to our location in the New Testament. Most of it is our spiritual location. As long as we are in the Lord, we can serve him wherever we are. And sometimes the Lord will lead. He will move you physically. I experienced that myself. Man, I would have loved to stay in Korea. But God said, no, it's time to come home. And that's almost a hard experience to even articulate. And without being in prayer, I may have missed that cue. I wouldn't be here with all of you. I would have missed out on that blessing. There have been plenty of times where I've been in the long, wrong location because I wasn't in the right location spiritually. I was not concerned with God's will and God's direction. But if you're in the right place spiritually, God can lead you physically as well. But it has to start with being in the right place with him. Now, we encountered this verse just a few weeks ago in 2 John 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, I made a few comments on this verse that you might have missed if you blinked. But uh, Robert Yarbrough says about this Greek word that it might be better translated to innovate. Anyone who innovates and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. But another commentator, Karen Job, says, no, this misses the whole point of this verb. This verb is a location verb. We are supposed to stay in Christ, to abide in the truth and not go beyond truth. Going beyond truth by necessity means going outside of truth. Truth is a static standard. To go beyond it 
beyond it is the same as to fall short of it. To go outside of it, to move away from Christ, to stop abiding in him because we do innovate with his teaching and say, no, I think it's better interpreted this way because that is more satisfying to my flesh. We'll end with here in Hebrews 10:19 because this really hits all th- or all four ideas our mindset our activity and both the spiritual and the physical location that believers should be in therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are to come into his presence knowing that he has washed us clean. His work and not our work makes us perfect before him. Nothing we can bring in our hands. It is all of the Lord. And we can have confidence Because it's not about our work, but his work. And his work is perfect. And he brings us into the very presence of God, into the throne room of God in prayer. He says, then let us hold fast the confession, which is agreement. Agreeing with him about what truth is. The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is what Abraham needs to learn. And this is what we should be able to learn. Notice where this is. This is Hebrews 10, right before Hebrews 11, where we get the Faith Hall of Fame, where the writer of Hebrew goes after case after case after case after case after case of Old Testament patriarchs learning about God's faithfulness so that they could trust, they could believe, that they could rest in faith. And let us consider, or to reckon, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you want to know where you need to be physically, there's one place that you know you should be, and that's among believers. In summary of what we learned this morning, that God uses Abram's partial obedience to develop his faith through natural consequences based on God's grace so that God and not Abram is responsible for Abram's separation. If Abram were just perfectly faithful, it would look like Abram was the one who did this and not God. God uses imperfect people to show his own glory, his own majesty, his own ability to work with people who have a free will and yet sovereignly operate to fulfill his purpose. That's an amazingly powerful God. That brings him glory. To see that he doesn't have to bend and twist our wills. But that he just shows us his own faithfulness. And we have the opportunity to walk into that blessing. God's faithfulness does not depend on the quality of our faith or faithfulness. But full experience of God's blessing will be reserved until we are prepared through obedience to enjoy it fully in fellowship with him. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we are thankful for the gift of your word. We are thankful that you have revealed your will for us and that you have given us responsibility that we might exercise our love for you by coming to know you through your word. By the renewing of our mind, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit which applies this doctrine to us so that we can know you and know your will in our lives. We pray that we would be faithful to walk in fellowship with you as we serve you on this earth until your glorious return, uh, where we are conformed perfectly and finally to your image. We praise in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.